good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dustin Crow, and I'm the Director of Discipleship here at College Park Fishers, and it's my pleasure to bring the word to you today. If you have your Bible, stay there in 2 Peter. That's where we're going to be. And this morning, we're closing out our series for Live 16 on why we believe the Bible. And today, we'll be talking about it is sufficient. In the book, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, he has a beautiful illustration of promises. Now, how many of you have actually read Pilgrim's Progress? Raise your hand. It's a good number of you. Now, how many of you, you haven't read it, but you would watch the movie if there was one, like you did with Chronicles of Narnia? <laughs> okay, yeah, thank you for being honest. I appreciate that. So in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, this is a book written in the 17th century, and it was an allegory. Um, and so what John Bunyan does is he doesn't just have metaphors like a dungeon represents something. He actually gives specific names to people and places so it's crystal clear what he's talking about. So, for example, the main person in the story, his name is Christian, and Christian's friend is Hope because he helps him along his journey. So that's a little bit about Pilgrim's Progress. But there's this scene about halfway through, and so Christian and Hope they actually leave the highway and they get on this shortcut to the celestial city. The problem is once they leave the highway and take this shortcut, they get caught by a giant. And the giant's name is Despair. So giant Despair takes Christian and Hope and he puts them in Doubting Castle. And giant Despair, he tells them, you might as well end your life. His whole goal is to get them to kill themselves. He says, you will never be released from this prison and so you might as well end your life. Well, after a couple of days, there's one morning, and then Christian suddenly remembers that he's had something this whole time that could have changed his situation. This is what Christian says to his friend Hope. What a fool I have been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this, when I could just as well walk free. I have a key in my pocket next to my heart called promise that will, I am sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. So Hope responds, that is good news, good brother. Take it from your pocket and try it. So then the book continues, so Christian pulled the key from his chest pocket and he fitted into the lock on the dungeon door. As he turned the key, the bolt released and the door flew open with ease. So the key called promise released them from giant despair and doubting castle and they got back on their spiritual journey. Now, what was Bunyan trying to tell us in this story? And there's probably a lot of things he wanted us to know. But at the top of that list is that God has given us specific things, namely promises. And these promises are keys that God wants us to use to help us in situations, to help us in times of need, and to help us grow. Not only that, but the reality is we often forget those promises or we ignore them. And so we need to do like Christian and treasure them up in our heart. And that's why it was in his chest pocket. It's not that promises are like magic tricks or religious mantras that just by saying them or doing them, they automatically fix the situations. No, that's not true. But the promises are tied to the knowledge of God. The promises ties to God himself, and he works powerfully and actively through those promises. So this story captures that fact, that God wants us to know, to use, to live in, and to walk in in his promises, and he has promises to help us in any situation or any need. And that will be the main idea we cover today, that the knowledge of God, 
and the promises of God are sufficient to sustain us and strengthen us in any situation. So to unpack that this morning, we'll go through three main ideas. First, we'll look at the sufficiency of the Word of God, and then we'll look at the knowledge of God, and then we'll look at the promises of God. Before going any further, just wanted to remind you what we've covered so far in this series. So in week one, we talked about the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. And then in week two, Pastor Chris preached on the relevancy and the power of Scripture in our lives, that it exposes who we are and what's going on, and that God then heals us and speaks to us in that. Last week, Dr. John Piper preached on the self-authenticating nature of the Word, that the Bible, in a sense, proves itself to us not only by the power of it, but how it comes true in each situation. So then this week, we will be talking about the sufficiency of the word. Just to give you a heads up, this morning, we won't actually talk about all eight verses. We'll kind of camp out on three and four. And I won't hit every single word or phrase, but my goal this morning is to be faithful to this passage, but also see what does this teach us on the Bible. In this series about what we believe on the Bible, what does this have to say to us today. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead, look down. We're going to be in verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God, we'll come to the rest in a minute. God, through His divine power, has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. We get this idea of sufficiency from that phrase, all things. Or if you have an NIV, it might say, in everything. So this sufficiency in all things or in everything, as we see, it comes through the knowledge of God and the promises of God. And all those things are just found in the Word of God. So you can kind of shorten that together and say that God's Word is sufficient for whatever we are going through. So God's power for us as His people, what that tells us, His power is available in any situation if we come to him through the word. To unpack this idea of God's sufficient word, we'll look at two main ideas. First, that scripture is sufficient for godliness. And second, that scripture is sufficient. So first, Peter tells us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Notice he's very specific about what it is sufficient for. It is sufficient for life and godliness. Throughout this letter, you'll see Peter putting two words together, and when he does that, those two words are kind of meant to be um, complementary or the same thing. So you'll notice in verse 3, or verse 2, he says, God and Jesus. In verse 3, he says, glory and excellence. In verse 4, he says, precious and great. So we take these pairs of words that Peter has, we put them together, and we kind of see that that's, that's the same thing. So if you take life and godliness and you ask, well, what does that mean? He probably just means a godly life. And godly life is obviously a big category, but it includes our salvation, our growth in holiness, our following Jesus as a disciple, um, and all the things we do as believers. It also includes eternal life. And so this says that the Bible is sufficient for all things that help you live the godly life. Before going any further, I want to unpack maybe a little bit more of what godliness might mean to to Peter. So if you look down in verse 4, we'll unpack that. He talks about godliness kind of in a positive way, and then he explains the same idea 
in a, maybe a negative way of looking at it. So verse 4, it says, So God has granted us his precious and great promises, and through them you, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the positive explanation of godliness is that we partake of the divine nature, and then the negative way of saying that on the flip side then is that we escape the corruption that is in the world. Now the reality that we partake of the divine nature, what does that mean? This will be quick, but clearly it means we don't become God. It doesn't mean that God's essence as a divine being is imparted to us. It's clear in the Bible that God does not share his glory, and there is only one God. But there are equally amazing, stunning things in the scripture that tell us what this might mean to to partake in the divine nature. So first, we're told that we're actually united with Christ. Colossians says, Christ is your life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we're united with Christ. Then we're told we're actually indwelt by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God actually lives in us. And then we have fellowship with God. So we partake in the divine nature by actually participating in fellowship with the Almighty God. But the second thing is, as we look at Jesus, the Spirit actually transforms us into his image. So as image bears, the Spirit is making us look more and more like God. And in that way, we are becoming like God. So that's the positive way of thinking about godliness, that we become like God as the Spirit changes us, and that we have fellowship with God. The negative way of saying that um, is that we escape the corruption that is in the world through our lusts. So the other side of that is that as the Spirit makes us like God, we become less and less like our fallen self, or less and less like the world. So those two together go together. So when Peter in verse 3 talks about life and godliness, in verse 4 he unpacks that, that we become like God and we become less like our sinful self in the sinful world. So as we talk about the knowledge of God and the promises of God and the sufficiency of Scripture, we need to know that first, that the aim of the Bible is that we would become godly, that we would be changed, and that God would equip us in any situation to respond like that. So now let's jump back and talk more about sufficiency of Scripture. If that is that Scripture is sufficient for godliness, what do we mean by sufficiency? This is how Wayne Grudem defines it. He says, The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now, for us, contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. So when we say Scripture is sufficient for the Christians, for Christians, we aren't saying that the Bible is necessarily sufficient for every area of existence. We're saying that the Bible is sufficient for us to know God, to know his truth, to know what is right and wrong, to know how to live in his world in a godly way. It is not to say that Scripture is sufficient, meaning the only book you need for everything there is to think about. It's not that the scripture acts like an encyclopedia, and if you want any answer on anything, you go to it. Or if you're thinking about, you know, how do I grow in my career, or what do I need to know specifically about the business world or about finances, it's not saying this is the only book you can use. 
It's also not saying for us as Christians that you should never read any book beyond the Bible. What it is saying is that the only thing you need to live a godly life and to respond in a godly way in any situation is the Word of God. But it's not saying it covers everything. Let me give you a quick example to kind of illustrate, but what does that mean? How is it sufficient, but it's not sufficient for everything there is in life? So, for example, when Melissa and I cook, when I'm her sous chef and she cooks, one of those two happens. Um, So when we cook, we don't open the Bible to get recipes. We actually get a good recipe book down from the shelf, and we use that. Um, Us, personally, we really like America's Test Kitchen, or if you're online, we like allrecipes.com. So there's a free bonus from Chef Crow. But we don't use the Bible to get our recipes. We go somewhere else. And so there are areas of knowledge that you go outside the Bible to learn something, to figure things out, and to grow. But what we do believe is that whenever we're going through a temptation, a trial, a struggle, a pain, and we have questions about what's right or wrong in this situation, in those areas, that's when we go to the Bible. It is sufficient for godliness there specifically. So if we understand first, well, the Bible's sufficient, but this tells me it's sufficient for godliness, what does that even mean that it's sufficient? So we get the aim, it's sufficient for godliness, but tell me a little bit more about sufficiency. So if we talk about sufficiency, one place maybe to begin is the authority of the word. One of our core values at College Park is the authority of the word. And I really think that authority and sufficiency, those two always go together. So this is our core value on the authority of the word. Whenever I talk about core values, Chris's eyes light up, so that's a bonus in talking about a core value. So this is, again, College Park. This is our core value. This is what we believe. This is what we live on. It says, the Bible is the foundation of who we are, what we believe, and everything we do. We are committed to preaching, teaching, counseling, sharing, and living by the sufficiency of the whole counsel of God because it contains everything we need for life and godliness. Real life change is found in the spirit-empowered word. Not our ideas, not our thoughts, not our opinions. God's word is written in ink while our plans and theologies are in pencil. That's our understanding of the authority of the word, and because of that authority, it leads to sufficiency. We don't need new or additional teachings outside of the Bible. We don't need modern thought about what's right and wrong, modern thought about God. We don't need to be experts in having walked through something to rely upon how we help somebody. We have God's word, and it is sufficient. Let me give you a couple more examples of where the Bible talks about its own sufficiency. So in the very first week of our series, we were in 2 Timothy 3, and this is another great place to go to see God has claimed that his word is sufficient for life and godliness. So in the first part of this, you'll know um, Paul says to Timothy, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. So the point there, he doesn't say Scripture is sufficient, but what he's saying is if you want to know the Lord, if you want to be reconciled back to God, if you want to be saved by faith in Christ, the Scriptures tell you everything you need to know. You're not missing information. There's not a hidden knowledge. There's not something else we're waiting on God to do or tell us. Everything we need for salvation is found in the Scriptures. It has been revealed to us. And then he goes on even beyond that in verse 16 
And he says, all Scripture, it's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And here's what he says, that the man of God may be confident, equipped for every good work. It is sufficient to equip us for every good work. Now, to me, that's very similar to what Second Peter is saying, that any good work we need to do, the Bible tells us how to do it. Any way we need to respond in a godly way or to help someone or share the gospel, the Bible is sufficient to help us. So if the Bible is sufficient for godliness, if we've kind of seen that and hopefully we have, why does that actually matter? It's one thing to believe, okay, the scripture is sufficient, it's sufficient for godliness, but what do we actually do with that understanding? I want to give two quick applications for here's what we do with the doctrine of sufficiency. First, know that the Bible speaks to whatever it is we are either going through or are seeking. The Bible is sufficient to address us in our struggles, our fears, our sins, our marital conflict, our anger, our habitual sins. The Bible is sufficient to speak into any of those areas. The Bible is also sufficient for our longings, our desires, the things we need most. The Bible is sufficient for fruitfulness in our lives, for joy, for having a relationship with God, for knowing God, and for righteousness. So the first application of the sufficiency of Scripture is that we need to take our questions, our struggles, our problems, the things we're going through, our desires, and we take that to God in His Word. We don't have to figure it out on our own. We don't have to sit back and hope the situation just changes. But we go to God in his word, and he promises to meet with us. As we'll see later on, that specifically happens through the knowledge of God and the promises of God in the word. But we're told here that the word of God is powerful, it is active, and that God uses it. So whatever it is that you're going through today, during this week, on a Tuesday night, whatever it is you're walking through, your struggles, your questions, your how is this going to work out, you take that to the word of God and you believe this is sufficient. This will tell me how to be godly. This will tell me what God wants for my life. This will tell me who God is for me in the midst of this situation. I don't need anything else. I have God and his word. And then the second thing, the second way I would apply that, is that the word of God is sufficient for us to minister and care to one another. The scriptures are meant to give us boldness and confidence as we take the word of God to others. So the Word of God not only helps us, but it helps us help others. Our confidence, our boldness, it's not in who we are. It's not in our experience. It's not that we've got it all together, but it's that we have the Word of God. That God has spoken, that we have truth, that we have this authoritative Word, and our confidence is in this. So as you have this scary, fearful thought about how do I share the gospel with someone, or as you're in a small group, or a Bible study, or a discipleship relationship, your confidence is in the Word of God. Our prayer is that we would be a church of people that are so believing of God and that He acts through His Word that this is the thing we speak to one another. We don't just share what we're going through. We don't just give our advice and our opinions. But we speak the Word of God to one another's lives. And we believe that it is sufficient. God uses us because we have his word. This is how Paul Tripp explains the idea. He says, the central work of God's kingdom 
is changed. God accomplishes this work as the Holy Spirit empowers people to bring his word to others. We bring more than solutions and strategies, principles and commands. We bring the greatest story ever told, the story of the Redeemer. Our mission is to teach, admonish, and encourage one another to rest in his sovereignty rather than establishing our own, to rely on his grace rather than performing on our own, and to submit to his glory rather than seeking our own. This is the work of the kingdom of God. People in the hands of the Redeemer, daily functioning as his tools of lasting change. So God's word is not only sufficient for us, but it's sufficient for us to help one another. It's not only sufficient for us to change and grow, but to see God work and see other people change and grow as we take the word of God to them. So now that we've talked a little bit about the sufficiency of Scripture, let's move to the next part. So Scripture is sufficient, but how does that actually happen? In what way is Scripture sufficient? So look down at your Bible again. We're going to jump back into verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But this happens through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So if the first half of verse 3 tells us that God has, by his divine power, granted us everything we need for a godly life, the rest of 3 and 4 explain, well, how does that happen? It tells us that the means by which God gives us everything we need to be godly is through the knowledge of himself, and specifically, as we'll see, a knowledge that gives promises. So let's talk a little bit about the knowledge of God. We know the knowledge of God is an important thing both in this book and to Peter. He mentions it three times in the passage we read this morning. Notice in verse 2, it says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord. And then in verse 3, we read this, But you, ha- you receive a godly life through the knowledge of him. Then in verse 8 again, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So obviously knowledge is really important to how God sustains us, how God grows us, and how he produces fruit in our lives. But what what kind of knowledge is this? What does it mean to know God? Usually in the Bible, when it talks about knowing God or having the knowledge of God or knowing in general, it's kind of a multifaceted concept. There's the reality that it clearly involves knowing things about God, that mentally we have to understand a little bit of who he is. We need some details about God. So there is this idea of the intellectual understanding that it has to grow. We only grow ourselves as our understanding of who God is, what he's like, what the Bible tells us as that grows. You might think of that in terms of my understanding of God, my theology of God. My theology has to grow in order for me to grow personally. And that's an aspect of what it means to know God. But it's not merely knowing about God. Knowledge always works in two ways where we have this kind of intellectual understanding, but then it has to move into a deeper realm, a more personal experiential realm. So knowledge involves not only knowing things about something, but knowing it, experience it, experiencing it. 
when it comes to people, that means not just knowing facts about them or knowing a little bit of history, but actually getting to know them personally. So knowledge in the Bible, it always has these two elements, knowing something and then actually experiencing it. And when you experience those two things together, that's when knowledge really comes alive. Again, to illustrate this, um, I'll go back to food because we've already started there. And last week, if you remember, when I mentioned our announcement about the pitching next week, I talked about cheesecake. So we'll just camp out on cheesecake again for a little while. So how would you illustrate what knowing something is or knowledge through cheesecake? I love to think about cheesecake, so we'll go there. Now, I need to know certain things about cheesecake to have a knowledge of it. I might know, well, it has, has cream cheese, it has butter, it has sugar, and, I mean, that's a good start, those three things by themselves. I might also know, well, I think cheesecake has this really good graham cracker tr- crust. You might even know some flavor things, like maybe the cheesecake is pumpkin pie, or maybe it's Oreo. So as you start to learn these things, yeah, we'll love some Oreo cheesecake. I saw that. But maybe as you're learning these things about cheesecake, you kind of get an idea in your head. Okay, I think I know what that's like. I can kind of even maybe taste it in the taste buds of my mind. I get a little bit about cheesecake. But that knowledge really changes when you experience the cheesecake. When you take a bite of that cheesecake and you put it in your mouth in all its delicious glory, that's when your knowledge becomes real. When you taste that smooth cheesecake goodness, and you get that crust alongside with it and all those flavors and toppings, that is when you know cheesecake at a deeper level. And so you had these ideas. I kind of knew a little bit about cheesecake, but now I really know cheesecake when you eat it. And that might seem silly, but really knowing is like that. You know, I can Facebook stalk someone. I can learn some facts. I can kind of know their history, see some pictures, but I don't know a person until I sit down with them. I hear about their lives. I get to know their story. And so that's when I really know them. So when it talks about the knowledge of God in the Bible, it has both those ideas in mind, that we need to know things about God, that we need to grow in understanding the details of who God is, but that's supposed to actually lead to experience. That's supposed to lead to relationship where we experience and we know and we walk with God. Let me give a couple more quick examples where God talks about knowing him in this way. We'll go with Hosea 2.20. This is where God connects his people being betrothed to him, to him knowing them. And clearly this is more than he is aware mentally of us. God says to his people, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That is supposed to be an intimate verse, that God brings us to himself, and we know the Lord. Or in John 17.3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when we think about the nature of the Bible, why it exists, what it does, what it's all about, we have to put the knowledge of God at the center. The point of studying the Bible, being in the Bible, doing a series about the Bible, is not just that we would have familiarity with the Bible itself, but that it would lead to friendship with God. We get in the Bible so that we see God and that we know him. And as we grow in knowing about God, this tells me that God is loving, that he is gracious, that he has provided for our salvation. Those are the things that draw us into his orbit. So then we really know him, we grow in that relationship, and those things increase over time. 
So again, to think about, well, what's one implication of the knowledge of God? Um, this is one thing I'd like to share. I think this actually helps safeguard us from misusing that doctrine of sufficiency. I think we have to take our doctrine of sufficiency and tie it to the knowledge of God. See, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in the Bible. But Peter's focus here is that he does that specifically through the knowledge of himself. So part of what that tells me then is that how God helps us and equips us in all situations and circumstances is not that we just slap a chapter and verse on this. It's not that we just say, oh, you have a problem. Here's your verse. It's not that we just go and we read a verse and we say, okay, my problem is fixed. But that God sustains us through the Bible specifically as he reveals himself. He gives commands, he teaches, he gives promises, he gives warnings. And all of these things help us primarily as they point us back to God. Let me give one example of where we see this or maybe how it works. So in July, we did a series on barriers. And one of the sermons that Chris preached on was Matthew 6 and anxiety. One of the things we saw is that the Bible does speak a lot about anxiety, both directly and indirectly. The passage we were in, Matthew 6, one of the things that's interesting is that Jesus actually points us not just to commands and principles and things to do, but he sustains us through the knowledge of God. He does give specific commands. He does tell us to do things. So I'm not saying you ignore all commands, that you only need the knowledge of God, or that the knowledge of God works apart from him telling us to do stuff. But what I am saying is that Jesus goes beyond just, just pray, just don't worry. Your worry, your anxiety doesn't fix things. What he does is he takes our eyes and he causes us to look upwards and to see who God is. If you remember that in Matthew 6, the way he does that is that he says, look at the birds. Look at how God cares for the birds. You know, every day they wake up and they have everything they need. Now, can you imagine if you are God's child, how much more he cares for you than the birds? If God feeds the birds, won't he take care of you tomorrow? So what Jesus does is he takes our, our heart and our mind and he says, think about God, how much God loves you, how much God cares about you, how powerful God is that he can take care of you, how sovereign God is that he is in control. He says, look at God. Jesus knows that the answer to our, anxi our anxiety is primarily found by thinking about who God is. And so for us as believers, how we apply this is that what we need most is the knowledge of God. We need to seek him, and we need to know him. At the end of this message, we'll come back to that, the knowledge of God, and see maybe one more way we would apply it. But in verses, if you look at in verses 2, 3, and 8, we see that this knowledge of God, that Peter actually says this is the thing that accomplishes our godliness. That when you have a right knowledge of God, it is not ineffective or unfruitful, but it does change you. And so it's the knowledge of God that is tied to the sufficiency of Scripture so that we are helped in every situation, not merely by knowing what to do, but by seeing who God is. So far this morning, then, we've talked about the sufficiency of the Scripture. We've talked about the knowledge of God. And now I want to finish by the third point and talk about the promises of God. Again, go back to the Word. We're going to look at how Peter connects these things together. I think there's a logic to these verses, and they build on one another. So we'll start back again at the beginning of verse 3. He says, God's divine power 
has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So what we see is that God's word is sufficient for life and godliness through the knowledge of God and then through or by the promises of God. So these promises actually not only reveal who God is, but they express the knowledge of God and they equip us in every situation. So I want to talk about the promises of God in a way that it ties it back to the knowledge of God, in a way that that ties us then back to the sufficiency of Scripture. So two points on the promises of God. First, the promises have to be directly connected to knowing God. And then second, these promises must actually be embraced to equip us for godliness. We'll start with the first one. So Peter calls these precious and great promises of God. He says these promises are sweet and they are sweeping. As I tried to do some Google um, searches this week, um, there are up to 5,000 promises in the Bible. So when you get into the Bible, it's just amazing how many of them there are and then how sweet and beautiful and life-changing these promises can be for us. Now the promises of God then are the means by which God assures us as his children in Christ that what we know about God is actually true for us. So the promises tell us not just who God is, but who God is for you. It doesn't just tell you what God can do or what God might do. Promises tell us what God said, I will do this. And so it takes our theology of God and our knowledge of God and promises make it personal. That God has said he will be this for me as his child and I can bank on it. John Piper explains then how the knowledge of God and the promises work together. He says this, the knowledge of the glory of God must be promising if it, if it is to carry power. We must know it and believe that we are included, that, that the promises are ours, that the call is to us. So promises are a reminder that this is true for you. Is God in his promises where he then strengthens us and he sustains us in any situation? And again, go back to the Bible and see, so where does God actually tie that the knowledge of God is with the promises of God? How do the promises of God have power and strength? Because God is the one who actually says them. How does our knowledge of God and our trust in God give power and strength to the promises he tells us? So three quick ones. In Hebrews 10, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So don't give up because you know God is faithful to do what he said he will do. Or the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews, both of them use um, Sarah and Abraham of, a, of examples of people living by promise. It says, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Why? Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Finally, Isaiah 41, it says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And here's the promise. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So the promises of God, these things point us to God, and then they assure us, because this is who God is, 
This is who he will be for you. This is the promise that if you are part of the blood-bought people of God, he will be faithful to his word in your life. Promises are important because they remind us that we don't operate, we don't live out of a sense of lack, but we operate from the sense of fullness, of sufficiency, that God has everything we need, and that through promises, he and his resources and his provision and his power come into our lives. So if that's kind of what promises are, and you could talk a lot more about promises, but how do we actually live into them? Okay, I know what a promise is, but a promise, is, a promise must be acted upon. A promise has to have something done with it. So how do we do that? How do we live on promises? How do we act on promises? I want to quickly walk us through just a few steps I came up with. With This is how you would live on a promise, and then I want to give us an example of how you do that. So when you think of a promise, what do I need to do? Okay, there are promises in the Bible. I had this situation. God has said he is sufficient to help me. So what do I do with the promise? I need to know that I need it. I need to know the promise. I need to receive the promise. I need to walk in the promise. And then sometimes I need to wait. Let me unpack all those a little bit. So first, I need to need the promise. It always begins with seeing and admitting my need my dependency, that the promise is for me because I am weak, because I am inadequate, because maybe I have sinned, because I am in a hard situation. And so I have to know that I need this promise and that it fits with my situation. And second, you need to know the promise. We must know what God's promises are. We need to be aware of specific promises. You can't live by a promise that you don't know exists. I think that's partly why in John Bunyan's story, he says that Christian, he had the key by his chest pocket, meaning that Christian had treasured up in his heart the promises of God. Third, we need to actually then receive the promise. So we not only have to know that it's true, but we have to know it's true for us, and we have to receive it in our own lives. We must act on these promises by believing these are ours in Christ. By faith, we trust in them, by faith, we grab them. When it comes to a promise, you have to, you have to say, in Christ, this is mine. I believe it. I'm going to live on it right here and now. It takes faith. It takes acting on that promise, promise and saying, this is mine. I'm in Christ. This belongs to me, and I believe it. And then similar to that, but a little different, is the fourth one. So you not only receive it, but then you have to walk in it. We not only once say, okay, I need this. I believe it's true, but the reality is we have to keep coming back to that promise. So a day later or a few moments later when you start to wonder or you have unbelief in your heart, you say, that can't be true for me or it doesn't feel like that's working out, you have to go back to that promise and you live on it again. It is an active walking with God's word. And so you, you keep meditating on that promise. You say, this is true right now here in this situation, whether I feel like it's true or not. This is true whether it's changing my situation right away or not. So you have to walk in that promise. You don't just say it once. You don't just read it once. But you live on and you feed on God's promises. And then fifth, sometimes you have to wait on it. God doesn't say that his promises are always answered right away. He does always answer and fulfill his promises. But he doesn't always do that in our timing. So part of trusting God and his promises is also trusting his timing. 
So those are kind of the five things to do with a promise. Now let me just give an example of how do we actually do that specifically. There are lots of different promises we could go to, um, but I want to go to 1 John 1.9. I'll just do the top verse. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when might you need a promise like that? Well, let's say you just blew it. You just failed. You just sinned. Or let's say you look at your own heart and you realize how dirty it is and how much sin there is and how, how selfish you are. You know, the reality is when we see our sin, we don't always go to God right away. We don't always confess our sin and embrace the gospel. You know, our sin, when we see it, it causes us to hide from God. Sometimes we think, I have to do penance and I have to feel bad long enough or I have to do better and then I can earn my way back into God's good graces. But this promise, it says, you receive full, immediate, and thorough forgiveness and cleansing by Jesus Christ. It's something given to you, and it's granted to you. And so that is a promise that we have to believe. Let's walk through really quickly again. How would you take those five steps and, and live on this promise? Again, think of when you sin, how you feel. It's hard to believe that the promise is true. You feel like this can't be true. God must be disgusted with me. You know, my sin must be outside the box of that promise. So in those moments, we have to come back to this. And first, we need to need it. And the reality is, if you know you've sinned, if you know my heart is now corrupt and I need cleansing, if you know I've rebelled against God again and I need forgiveness, then this promise applies to me. If I've sinned, if I've failed, if I've done the wrong thing again, then this promise is for me. So it starts with confession. But second, we need to know it. We need to know that this promise even exists in the Bible. We need to know that Jesus died so that we can be forgiven and cleansed. We need to know that God is a forgiving and merciful God. We need to know, as the verse goes on, that through Christ, not only are our sins paid for, but we get the favor of God. We need to know that we have an advocate, and when we mess up again, and it tells us we will, that we immediately can go right back to God in confidence, in boldness, and ask for forgiveness. So we need to know that that promise exists and what it's telling us. Third, we need to receive this promise. We need to take it as our own. We actually have to, when we then feel shameful, when we feel dirty, when we feel embarrassed, when we know we've done wrong, we take this promise and say, this is true for me. It's not just that God is a forgiving God or that God is a merciful God, but God forgives me now. I trust in Jesus now. I'm banking and believing in the gospel now that it applies to me. Even though I feel wrong, I feel dirty, I feel sinful, I am trusting that since I confessed my sins, since I asked for forgiveness, that God does forgive and cleanse us. We have to receive that promise by faith and know this is true for me here and now. And just to say really quickly, if you, if you are here and you're not a Christian, this is the essence of the gospel. The same thing we do day to day as Christians, living by faith and promises, that's what it means to come to Christ. You have to know that you're a sinner. You have to know that because of your sin and because God is just, he will punish that sin. And yet you have to take his promise and accept it and believe it. God has told you, however bad your sin feels, however big your sin feels, whatever you've, whatever you've done that is wrong, my promise to you is that if you confess it, if you turn from it, that I will forgive you, that I will make you 
who were once an enemy a child. That is a promise given to you. And if today you believe that and you accept it, you are forgiven and cleansed. And so we not only believe and rest on promises at the moment of salvation, but we do that day after day after day. So going back to our point, we not only receive it third, but fourth, we walk in it. We have to keep reminding ourselves what is true, what the promise says, how this belongs to us. As emotions and feelings take over and you start to doubt, you go back and you trust in the promise of God. The good news is with this promise, there's no fifth point. There's no waiting. There's no seeing this come to fulfillment in the future. But you are forgiven and you are cleansed now. And so you keep going back to that. And this is how we as Christians live by promise. These promises of God, both rooted in the knowledge of God and revealing the knowledge of God, These are the things that sustain us. These are the things that God uses to, in any situation or in all things, equip us to live a godly life. God's word is sufficient because the God of the word is sufficient. And we look to the knowledge of him and the promises of him. So as we close, I want to give two more quick applications. As we close out, not only this message on the Bible, but this series on the Bible, here are two encouragements for How do I live this out? How do I approach the Bible differently? First, pray the promises. You know, my prayer life often looks like all the things that I want, but not necessarily what God has told me he will do. I pray for security, for health, for resources, for blessings, for ease, for safety. And those aren't bad things, but those aren't the things that God has promised he will deliver on or he will give me. And so I need to go to the Bible, I need to know promises, and I need to pray into them. So, for example, Isaiah 41, we read it earlier. When I am fearful, when I'm worried, when I'm scared, when I'm anxious, I need to pray into Isaiah 41.10 that God will uphold me. I need to ask him, God, will you uphold me? Will you strengthen me? Will you cause me to know that you are the one helping me through this situation? When I'm tempted, I need to go to 1 Corinthians 10.13 and pray that promise that God will, in any temptation, provide a way of escape, that he is faithful and he will not tempt you beyond what you can handle. So we need to pray the promises. And then second and finally, we need to know the promises and know the God of promise. This passage reminds us that at the center of the Bible, at the center of Bible study, of the storyline, is the knowledge of God. So I need to read the Bible less in a Dustin-centered manner of wanting to get some things for my day and more of a God-centered manner of seeing who he is and how he changes my day. So when you read the Bible this week, here's what you need to do. Here's one thing. You need to look for God. You need to search intently. Anywhere you see something that tells us about who God is, about his character, his person, the way he works, his promises, the way he acts, You need to highlight that, circle it. You need to think upon it. You need to pray into it. This tells me what my God is like. I need that knowledge of God, and I need the promises of God. As you see God, this is what changes you. This is a quote by J.A. Packer, and we'll close with this. He wrote a book called Knowing God. He says, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is life eternal that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? 
knowledge of God. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So with a series about why we believe the Bible, we need to remember that this is for us to reveal God so that we can have a relationship with God. In the word, we have everything we need because we have God. Would you close me uh, in prayer and then we'll, we'll worship together. God, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you are not hidden, that we don't have to try to guess what you are like, but you have revealed yourself to us. And God, we need you. We need you today. We'll need you this week. We need your strength. We'll need your promises. So God, give us a heart's desire to know you, to open the word so that we can see you and to be changed by you. God, thank you for your promises that strengthen us. Thank you for the gift of a relationship with you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.